Welcome to the CFO's podcast. Today we're taking a closer look at Canada and investment opportunities north of the border. I'm Michael Hedstrom, and I'm pleased to have with me Jonathan Morgan, President and CEO of Canadian General Investments and Executive Vice President at Morgan May & Associates. As a principal of the firm, Jonathan's responsibilities include investor relations, portfolio management, security analysis, strategic planning, and business development. Jonathan, thank you for being with us today. My pleasure, Michael. Thank you for having me. You're based in Toronto and have followed Canadian markets closely for a long time. Can you share your thoughts on why you as investors and advisors should take a closer look at investment opportunities in Canada? Well, I think it's one of these situations where because Canada is so close to the United States and is generally, you know, sort of peaceful and prosperous, we don't actually make it into the American consciousness very often. You know, you can see that there are very, very few ways to actually, in terms of funds, to actually invest in Canada. And if people do think of Canada, they tend to just sort of think of, you know, oil and gas, maybe mining and forestry. And all of those things certainly are there, and they make up a big weighting in the stock market, but there's a lot more to Canada. It might surprise people to know that the two dominant sectors of the Canadian economy are actually auto parts, auto manufacturing, and aerospace. Uh, and on top of that, you know, if you're investing internationally, you know, why are you doing it? You want to find some place that's going to provide some diversification, is going to provide possibly some enhanced returns, and also that's going to be something where you can feel secure having your money. And Canada has actually stood out in this way over the last decade. You know, we never had a financial crisis here. There was no bank failures. There was no housing crash. We led the G7 in terms of business investment, in terms of GDP growth, and in terms of employment growth through the crisis and the recovery. You know, we really wouldn't have had much of anything, to be honest, if it hadn't been for the infection spreading out of the other international centers. So I think it's worthwhile looking at Canada as a place where maybe you can uh, get some benefits from diversification, you can possibly get some enhanced returns, but at the same time, it's something of a, a safe haven that's well-regulated, you know, good rule of law, uh, and uh, you can understand it's not that far. You, you're able to watch what's happening. And the Canadian financial markets have performed well in 2016. What's your perspective on the market and some of the sectors that are making headlines, such as the housing market, financials, and obviously commodities, including energy and metals? Well, I think that overall, in the global market right now, we're into what's basically sort of the, a late stage in the economic cycle, where it's, it's a late stage expansionary period. And this can last, you know, two, three, four years. And this is the, a, a good time for the Canadian economy because what you'd be seeing then, if, if I'm right about that, is a, uh, a recovery in the cyclical stocks. And we have a lot of those in the Canadian market. So, you know, the obvious one is you've seen re some recovery in energy and oil and gas. Uh, I think you're seeing some bottoming in the uh, industrial commodities. And then cyclical sectors, like we have, like, um, you know, some of the industrials, consumer discretionary, and that sort of thing should do well as well. So what you've seen is, you know, the U.S. market has done well, but the Canadian market has done a little bit better because you're providing uh, more levers to that uh, late cycle growth. As far as the sectors that are in the headlines, you know, people have been predicting a Canadian housing crash for uh, eight or nine years now, and it hasn't happened. And I think that it's based on a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of the Canadian 
housing market. You have to understand it's regulated differently and it's managed differently. There's no non-recourse lending in Canada. So you can't just walk away from your mortgage and hand the keys to the bank. You're still on the hook. You uh, you owe that money. So people that you know have their minds focused when they're getting into a mortgage and they t- typically do repay their mortgages because we're also not incentivized to have as large a mortgage as possible because mortgage interest isn't tax deductible for us. So we're much more incentivized just in sort of market terms to make sure we don't get too much into debt. And then on top of that, uh, there's no no money down mortgages. Anything less than 10% has to be insured by the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, but they won't insure anything over a million dollars now. And they are starting, there's legislation in being considered to require the banks to share some of the burden, even if it is insured, so you know, focus their minds. So you, you've got that going on. It's also uh, people have to qualify for a mortgage as if they're getting you know, a five-year fixed-rate mortgage, even though they might not be. They've shortened the mortgage amortization periods. 25 years is the longest now, I believe. So it, it's a much tighter market. And really, there's only two hot spots in the Canadian market. There's Vancouver and Toronto. And those are not Typical. I mean, you've already seen because of the energy prices coming off, the Calgary market, which had been quite uh, hot, come off, but it hasn't crashed. There aren't a, a huge spike in uh, mortgage arrears or mortgage delinquencies. Vancouver is uh, a lot of international money, and the same thing with Toronto. If you want to see some parallels for uh, Toronto and Vancouver, is actually Sydney and Melbourne in Australia, you know, similar-sized economy, similar nation of economy, and, it, and again, it tends to be uh, foreign investors coming out of Asia. Although in that parallel, Sydney actually, even though it's the largest city, corresponds with Vancouver because they both have similar geographic constraints where they just can't spread out anymore and they have to build up. Toronto has some other issues. It's got some geographic constraints and some provincial, so your version of state government, requiring that it just can't sprawl anymore. But you know what you're seeing is that even though it's getting quite expensive on a global scene, it's not. You know, they're still actually quite affordable, and that's why international investors are looking to buy in. In Vancouver, the government in BC, they've introduced a new kind of tax, a 15% surcharge on uh, foreign non-resident buyers. So that has cooled the market off. It's come off quite a bit. In Toronto, the prices are still sort of creeping up, but the number of new listings has come down a lot. So that's one of the reasons. There's just a little less supply in the market. And what you're seeing is what is actually being built, the condo markets, the prices haven't gone up very much. It's low-rise detached houses, and you know there's just not that much more being built at the moment. So could the market correct? Certainly. But I don't think you're going to see a crash unless we had a huge rise in unemployment. That's what can cause a sharp decline in housing, but I don't see it. I think we're probably going to go for uh, some fairly moderate growth and basically some good economic recovery or actually continued economic growth in, for Canada in the next couple of years. You know, the other thing is that in, in the United States, there's a lot of funds making the news by uh, promoting the idea of shorting Canada. You know, it was for a long time, for several years, they were saying short the Canadian banks. They're going to have a banking crash. We never did. Now, the banks aren't big enough, they can push them around, but now they've sort of moved down to mortgage lenders, and you are seeing some 
movement on those lenders as people are, yeah, with some justification worried that, you know, if there is a market correction, they may take a bit of a hit, although I think that's really overdone. But these are smaller companies, and having the big shorts come in and short them means they can, they can push them around some more. But people really haven't made a lot of money on trying to short the Canadian banks because they're just too big. So they had depressed the prices a little bit, but it didn't move much. And then, um, you know, you asked me about commodities, energy, and metals. I think we're seeing a bit of a turn. I don't think we're going to have a bull market in oil, but I do think it has firmed and has potential to move up a little bit more. I think just the sheer abundance of oil now that can be tapped quite easily in the United States in particular means that there's a, a pretty good ceiling on the price of oil. But I think we found the floor and we're moving up a, a little bit as well. And I think you're, you're probably going to see a bit of recovery in the industrial metals as well. We, we're in, in sort of 2013, it looked like we were sort of starting into this sort of expansion that I'm proposing we're in now. And then it was a bit of a false start. And so we had too much inventory. And so the demand for these metals and everything came off. And I, I think we've worked through that inventory problem. And so they're coming back now. So I think overall, it's a, it's a pretty uh, bullish picture for the Canadian market. Jonathan, can you also talk a little bit about the Canadian economy? What's your outlook and what has been the impact of, for example, the fiscal stimulus and investment in infrastructure that has been taking place? Well, my own Canadian economy as a whole is fairly muted. I think the worst of the bad news has already happened in the West, in the oil patch. So I don't think it's going to be a roaring recovery there, but I think that will stabilize. And that's where you see the job losses. And you might see a little bit of job growth there in the central Canadian economy. So Ontario, Quebec, uh, which is dominated by services, financials, and export-led manufacturing. We're seeing sort of a slow recovery in the exports, the manufactured exports. And that's really because they had such a hard time for so long with the uh, really strong Canadian dollar and a weak U.S. market that they weren't able to invest in excess capacity when they really should have been uh, with the strong dollar to actually meet the enhanced demand we're starting to see now. So although you're seeing a recovery there, it's quite slow, and I think that'll keep going that way. So I think it's actually overall fairly good news. And of course, when you're looking in, in a stock market, that's sort of the broad economy, but you're uh, looking at trying to uh, as an active manager, you're looking at trying to find the sweet spots where there are companies that are, are really doing well. Now, you recall we had a new election a year ago. It was a much quieter affair than what you've got going on in the United States right now. With a new government coming in, and they did promise to do some fiscal stimulus and to make some investments in infrastructure. I don't think we've seen a lot of effect of that yet. Infrastructure always takes quite a long time to build. I think it was necessary. Our infrastructure was a bit old and creaky and needed to be invested in. And I think longer term, you will see uh, some effects of the stimulus. But I, I think they are committed to doing more. Certainly, the Bank of Canada has been calling for stimulus, like most central banks in the developed world have been saying, you know, there's no more we can do. Uh, the government should be doing some, some uh, stimulus as well. So you're seeing a bit of that here. And uh, because of that, I think we're probably going to continue to see some enhanced growth from it. But, uh, you know, we're in a lucky position that we had the lowest debt level of any of the countries uh, in the G7. So we've got a lot of scope to do this kind of thing without getting ourselves into too much trouble, hopefully. How about the currency? What's your outlook for the Canadian dollar? 
Well, yeah, I'm a sort of of two minds on that. I, uh, you know, normally you'd expect the Canadian dollar to move pretty much in lockstep with the price of oil, and there's only been a couple of times when it doesn't. When we had the uh, the financial crisis of 08 or 09, all of a sudden you saw the Canadian dollar didn't move with oil, and that was really because international investors were buying Canada as a safe haven. So that's not the effect we're going to see now. I think people are piling into the U.S. dollar in a, in a strong way. I think there's a very good chance the Fed will raise rates, but I don't think the uh, Bank of Canada are going to, is going to raise rates. They've been sounding quite dovish in the most recent comments. So I think you might start to see a greater interest rate differential and a bit of a weakening in the Canadian dollar. On the flip side, I do think that because we're into a bit of an expansion that helps the pro cyclical side of the economy, that you're going to see some recovery in the Canadian market. So that should provide some strength to the uh, Canadian dollar. But, you know, if it went down to sort of 70 cents U.S., that wouldn't surprise me that much. And finally, why should investors consider using an actively managed closed-end fund instead of a passive exchange-traded fund to access the Canadian market? And why a single-country fund? Okay. Well, I think the reason you'd want an actively managed fund is you know, you have to ask yourself, what are you buying? And if you look at the Canadian market, what you find is that the market is dominated by the five or six or five plus one big banks. That's about 25% of the index right there. And then there's a further 10% in financials. And then you've got the energy materials, and that's over half the market. And, of course, you know, there's a lot more going on than that. But what happens is, is that once you get past the big banks and maybe, you know, Suncor and a couple of the biggest companies, things get to a smaller capitalization and they're just not as liquid. You know, this, is, this isn't the same as the New York Stock Exchange. So it really helps to have, A, a vehicle that isn't affected by that. So, you know, having a closed-ended structure, you can have more efficient portfolio management and you can invest in things that are not quite as liquid because the manager doesn't have to worry about funding redemptions. At the same time, you can trade the stock if you really want to. And that's the problem. If you're dealing with something illiquid in an open structure, you can quickly find that it turns out it's not an open structure. It turns out that it's suddenly become private because they'll suspend redemptions because they either can't sell the uh, the holdings or they can't price them properly. So I think you know that's where a closed-ended structure beats an open-ended structure, and then the actively managed part helps with being able to get beyond the dominance of just these big companies to some of the really world-class, world-beating companies that are just a little bit underneath those headline stocks. At the same time, with an ETF, you're getting all of that, just the exposure, the bias of the big companies. And so you're not getting the, the benefit of some of these smaller companies. You're not getting as diversified a product. And you've got all the problems of liquidity as well. And, you know, you see that with uh, an ETF. You, you probably wouldn't go no bid like you saw it with some uh, commercial real estate ETFs in the U.K. Uh, but you'll get some pretty big tracking errors because they simply can't buy and sell the stocks quickly enough. So they have to use some sort of derivative strategy. And, uh, and you know, you saw that if, if you got some wild swings in the market, you got some pretty wild, even wilder swings in ETFs uh, in the last few years. So I think that's why there are some areas that a closed-end actively managed fund is one of the best answers you can get. It's, the, it's a great structure and it's giving you something that you can't get elsewhere. As far as a country fund, I mean, that was in many ways one of the first uses 
of a closed-end fund because the, one of the funds I manage, Canadian General Investments, that was launched back in the 1920s as a way for largely British investors to invest in Canada, which was something of an emerging market at the time. And by doing that, you can have boots on the ground. Uh, I'm, I'm right here in Toronto, who are very in close in touch with the scene. Other companies are familiar with the ins and outs of the regulations, but you get to have that professional management while you're at home, and it's it's traded on a stock market, so you get all the transparency you get with a public company and good governance. Thank you, Jonathan. We appreciate your insight and for being with us today. This has been very informative. Well, it's my pleasure, Michael. I'm pleased to be able to talk to you. You can hear more from Jonathan at the upcoming CIFA Advisor Summit event in Fort Lauderdale, Florida on November 16th. Information about the event, including registration, is available on our website at cifa.com. You can also learn more about Morgan May and Associates and their closed-end funds on their website at mmainvestments.com, as well as on cifa.com. Thank you for listening. This concludes our podcast. Have a great rest of the day.